0: Conscience is a bugbear, isn't it? I refer to the way that the internal voice criticizes our failings and nudges us with the deeply felt sense that we are not good enough, that we are not doing the best we can do. No doubt this sense improves the outcome in terms of goals, certainly it makes us treat one another better. Is this not evidence that our conscious experience makes a difference to how we behave in the world? Why torture us with a conscience if we have no power to do anything about it? In the previous episode, I laid out a new argument that says consciousness should serve a function. That is to say, consciousness is not an epiphenomenon. I shared with you the classic metaphor by T.H. Huxley in which he compared consciousness to the steam whistle on a locomotive. The sound emitted from the steam whistle is caused by the locomotive, but it does not function in propelling the locomotive. It is an effect but not a cause in the functioning of the locomotive. Huxley and others have argued the same for consciousness, beautifully in my opinion, but I disagree with them. I'm convinced by my reasoning that consciousness itself is functional, at least in conscious human beings and related conscious animals. It should be noted right here at the top that this is not an argument for or against free will. Neither of my two principal arguments against epiphenomenal consciousness have established a basis for free will. That misunderstanding of my arguments might lead to some resistance on the part of determinists, but I can show quite concisely that one need not get defensive on those grounds. Using T.H. Huxley's famous illustration, the steam whistle does not serve the locomotive's operation. Obviously, the pistons and the boiler and the wheels do, but no one in their right mind would suggest that pistons and boilers have free will. Truly free will is a pretty incoherent idea that would require something other than a physical and neuroscientific basis for consciousness. Either the will is free but with tight constraints, or the will is not free at all. But this episode is not about free will. I am wondering about the implications of a functional consciousness for our understanding of right and wrong, for morality. When I speak of consciousness, I am referring to myself directly. I am a conscious mind. I seem to be associated with the mortal brain of this human animal. If I serve a function for this human animal, that means that I have some measure of causal power within him. In this sense, I am more like the engineer piloting the locomotive than I am like its mechanical components. But how much control does the engineer have? He is quite constrained. He is literally on rails. He can direct the locomotive to speed up and slow down and a few other basic operations. While it is not clear that a functional consciousness implies willful control of action, I favor the idea that willful control contributes to the causation that occurs in brain-mediated behavior. Even if we do not literally carry out the action consciously, neither does the engineer literally turn the wheels. Nevertheless, he has an undeniably important task to perform. So what shall the engineer do? He has a job to do, which is facilitated by his locomotive. He is moving freight or passengers according to his schedule. He should thus deliver his goods safely to their destination at the designated time. If he achieves this, then he has done well. What this little example shows is that given a particular goal, it is possible to do better or to do worse. Moral philosophy, it seems to me, has two variables to contend with. What should we do, A, given which explicit and implicit goals, B, Much of moral thinking deals with the first variable, A. What action should be taken? Since we have been talking about locomotives, we can pretty easily shift over to the trolley problem. A runaway trolley is flying down the track and is about to run over five people. You are a bystander, standing next to a lever. If you pull the lever, the trolley will switch to going down a different rail, but if it does, it will kill one person who is standing on the other track. The question, which we need not try to answer here, is what is the right thing to do? The trolley problem hinges on agency. If you pull the lever, you will cause the death of a person who would otherwise live, whereas you are not the cause of the trolley running down the five people that is on his way toward. This is a problem dealing with the variable A. What should you do? But what about the more fundamental problem regarding variable B? What is the explicit or implicit goal that you should have? Implicit in the trolley problem is the assumption that people getting killed is bad and people being saved is good. Anyone with humanity could agree with that assumption. But where does it come from, and is it reliable? It comes from evolution. It couldn't come from anywhere else. The brain, which gives rise to consciousness, is an evolved structure. The values that we treasure are evolved human values, and evolution by means of natural selection doesn't give a fuck about morality. According to natural selection, what is right is what works. The most basic goals are survival and reproduction. Of course, these are implicit goals. Natural selection is a description of a process that happens, not a goal-driven agency. It is simply a matter of fact that the genes which continue to exist are those which are best at continuing to exist. How might the human brain have evolved to get us to the common moral intuitions that we share as a species? I think the key is that we are a social species. To begin to think about this, I'll share with you some research findings from Larry Young. He and his colleagues compared the brains of the prairie voles with those of the superficially similar montane voles. Behaviorally, these are very different rodents. Prairie voles mate for life with the same partner, whereas montane voles mate and move on. Prairie voles are deeply loyal and social, whereas montane voles are solitary. Young found a difference in the density and distribution of oxytocin and vasopressin receptors. Patricia Churchland describes the effect a lecture given by Larry Young had on her in her book Conscience. She writes, quote, After Young's talk ended, I wandered out of the room and sat on the Salk Institute's pool edge, looking out over the cliffs to the vastness of the Pacific. Francis Crick and I had often sat here and talked about the brain. Sometimes we had talked about morality in the brain. He once accompanied me to the University of California San Diego campus across the street to attend a philosophy seminar on ethics. As we walked back to the Salk, he expressed astonishment that the talk was all about pure reason, with nothing at all about the contribution of biology. Surely, he added in exasperation, philosophers must know about biological evolution. Crick had thought it was highly likely that the basic motivation for sharing and cooperation and for learning social norms was fundamentally owed to the genes that build brain wiring. Until we got the biology nailed, or at least semi-nailed down, Crick thought that focusing on reason was not getting to the heart of the matter. This seemed right to me. Much earlier, the Scottish philosopher David Hume had argued that we are born with predispositions to be socially sensitive, what he called our moral sentiment. Crick's take on the matter seemed to be a modern version of Hume's 18th century hypothesis, and his rationale was much like Hume's. Reason alone will never motivate typical moral behavior, even though it can help us figure out how to satisfy our moral desires. The trouble was that at the time Crick and I had these conversations, there was no fruitful entry point from which to make progress in figuring out the brain-based nature of Hume's moral sentiment. I could not see any neurobiological results that might spearhead a deeper understanding of moral behavior or of our conscience. The prairie voles and their special receptor densities changed all that. Sadly, however, by the time Larry Young gave his talk, Crick himself had died. Young's data regarding oxytocin and prairie voles were inspiring precisely because they did suggest an entry point into the brain-based nature of morality. His story made sense in neurobiological, psychological, and evolutionary terms. I was astonished to realize that a relatively tiny difference in structure, the density of receptors for oxytocin, could be at the root of something as apparently complex as monogamy. Equally astonishing was the fact that it is oxytocin that is at the core of mate attachment. Why? Because it is oxytocin that is at the core of mother-baby attachment. Could it be boiled down to this? Attachment begets caring. Caring begets conscience. Modify receptor density in various regions with a small genetic tweak, and empathy may extend from offspring to mates, to kin, or perhaps to the wider community. No faculty of reason governs vole monogamy. No religion lays down rules for the voles. No philosophical arguments are deployed at vole seminars. Prairie voles are socially monogamous because their neurobiology works that way. Individuals do not up and decide to be social on grounds that it might help them thrive. Our genes dispose us to be social mammals, and our thriving follows along. Evolution favored those developments. Moral norms emerge mostly as practical solutions to social problems, just as specific boat-building norms emerge as practical solutions to local water travel problems. Assuming that having a consciousness involves caring for certain others with varying degrees of self-sacrifice, I could now see, albeit only in the most general terms, a path from biology to morality." Is it just me or does this present a serious liability to the investigation of morality? In part, morality must be the discovery of principles that are inbuilt by evolution. The firing of action potentials, the docking of neurotransmitters at the receptors, the influence of one part of a network on another, these give rise to the feelings and thoughts that we have. Even if the conscious will is functional, the systems which establish the will, its values and principles are instantiated by evolution. It probably wouldn't even occur to a montane vole to intervene in the runaway trolley. The living and dying of strange rodents is none of the montane vole's business, and it wouldn't disturb him one bit to witness the destruction of five of their number. He has not evolved to take interest in such things. His receptors are aligned with other imperatives. But it can't be that simple in humans, because cultures develop their own systems of norms and laws that must be features of cultural rather than biological evolution. And systems of philosophy are aimed at establishing ethical principles based on reasoning. But the object of philosophical reasoning has to do with individual and societal well-being. Since well-being is ultimately a matter of biology and conscious experience, the moral philosopher is constrained to the way it is for human animals. Often it isn't the thing itself which is right or wrong to do, but rather the way in which it causes others to be affected, positively or negatively. In general, stealing is wrong. And theft has been a crime in civilizations everywhere for as long as legal systems have been around. Likewise for murder. Imagine an alternative reality where stealing is a victimless crime. Or better yet, wherein being stolen from is a pleasure. It's the best thing that can happen to you. Perhaps in this bizarro world, giving someone a gift causes them to suffer great pain. In that case, of course, stealing would be doing someone a favor, and giving them a present would be an affront. Accordingly, I expect that the giving of gifts would be a punishable criminal offense. This little illustration shows that victimization, or the externalization of suffering or loss upon another person, is the moral wrong, not the act itself. If pointing your finger at somebody caused them to get a bad headache, then it would be a form of assault. Since it doesn't, it makes no sense to outlaw pointing. Of course, we can bicker and argue over what constitutes harm and what society should do about it. That's a policy discussion, and that's not really my interest. The key point is that morality applies to the social realm. Conscience, therefore, must be primarily a characteristic of evolution in social creatures, and a total lack of conscience would amount to being antisocial, to being totally indifferent to the feelings of others. If conscience is instantiated in brain function, then a brain which lacks this function for whatever reason will produce a mind without conscience. In a section of her book on psychopathy, Churchland writes, quote, Although scientists anticipated that brain imaging techniques might reveal the relevant differences between typical brains and psychopathic brains, the evidence based on those techniques remains tantalizing but inconclusive. Frontal structures and their loops to the reward system, and areas important for motivation and feelings are generally suspected as likely culprits. The best of the brain imaging research on psychopaths does show lower levels of activity in diverse regions, some in the frontal cortex, some in the reward system, and some in seemingly improbable places. Unlike individuals who suffered head accidents that damaged the front of the brain, psychopaths show no frank lesions or holes in images of their brains. Moreover, while some persons diagnosed as psychopaths show relatively decreased activity in frontal structures, so do some typical people. Individual variability means that the sample studied must be very large if we are to get meaningful results. Before going any further, we need a clarification. What is meant by psychopath? The behavioral criteria for a diagnosis of psychopathology are complex, entailing not only antisocial and conduct problems, but more exactly a lack of feelings of guilt or remorse, the absence of significant bonding with others, and a lack of compassion or empathy, even for those in the family who have shown them great affection. Psychopaths are narcissistic and are pathological liars, showing no sense of embarrassment or shame when caught flat out in a barefaced lie. They are without a moral compass and can be highly manipulative, mercilessly exploiting the kindness and goodness of others. Some offenders imprisoned for ghastly murders may show conduct disorders, but still be capable of a degree of remorse and shame, and they may be strongly bonded to certain family members. They may have some traits in common with psychopaths, but they are not psychopaths. The diagnosis thus involves two prongs, antisocial conduct and absence of appropriate emotional responses such as guilt and remorse, Okay, so at least according to Churchland's review of the literature in 2019, there is much that we still don't know about the neurobiology of psychopathy, but ultimately all behavior, all emotions, and all experiences are delivered by the brain. The shocking thing to consider is that the only reason we are not all psychopaths is because the antisocial strategy does not outcompete the pro-social ones, at least not at scale. And thank God for that. The theme of this discussion forces us to go all the way to fundamentals. If morality is not objective, but rather a matter of social evolution, then in what sense do our moral intuitions speak to truth? I shared some passages from Donald Hoffman in past episodes. Hoffman makes the argument that perception cannot inform us about reality, in his book The Case Against Reality, in which he says, quote, To ask whether my perception of the moon is veridical, whether I see the true color, shape, and position of a moon that exists even when no one looks, is like asking whether the paintbrush icon in my graphics app reveals the true color, shape, and position of a paintbrush inside my computer. Our perceptions of the moon and other objects were not shaped to reveal objective reality, but to disclose the one thing that matters in evolution, fitness payoffs. Physical objects are satisfying displays of crucial information about payoffs that govern our survival and reproduction. They are data structures that we create and destroy. The language of space and time, of physical objects with shapes, positions, momenta, spins, polarizations, colors, textures, and smells, is the right language to describe fitness payoffs, but it is fundamentally the wrong language to describe objective reality." In my opinion, Hoffman makes an important point, but he takes it too far. In a sense, this is a positive thing, though, because taking an idea to the extreme can be clarifying. In one sense, though not the sense he intends, Hoffman is definitely correct. In fact, what we experience are the dynamics of neural networks, not the dynamics going on in the space around us. We don't see the bird flying through the air overhead. We see the dynamics of neurons in visual association areas of the cortex. The question I'll pose is, is there a bird doing such a thing as flying through a medium we call air? Does it have appendages we call wings and feathers and a beak? I think Hoffman would argue that it does not. For him, the bird we see is no more representative of reality than the Twitter icon on my computer is representative of the software which runs on the servers. I have no doubt that what we see when we gaze upon the world is distorted, as it is laundered through the sensory system, but I think the brain is probably giving us a fairly accurate sense. It seems likely to me that what we get is very much enhanced. Perhaps if there were a way to see the raw visual data as expressed in the photoreceptors of the retina, what we would see would be noisy and unclear by comparison. Nevertheless, Hoffman's book provides a counterargument to the usual assumptions. By analogy, the brain provides us with a sense of right and wrong. In my analysis, I suggested two variables for moral thinking. Variable A is what we should do given the goals, which are variable B. Internal consistency makes variable A at least approachable, and that's what moral philosophers often work on. But variable B is directly born of the evolved human brain. Associative learning uses these brain systems to couple certain experiences to the sense of right and others to the sense of wrong. By this means, our cultural and academic educational experiences socialize us. So our cultures can and do, for better or worse, bias our senses of right and wrong according to the norms of the time and the place. Maybe it's a human universal that we come up in an age and assume not only that our cultural norms are the right ones, but that everyone in every other time and place should know that. Of course, that standard is impossible and probably misguided. So should we be moral relativists? Should we tolerate atrocities carried out by other societies so long as they are not considered atrocities by those societies? That seems like shaky ground to me, and I'm inclined to think not. In the end, moral questions are questions for human civilization to grapple with. Often, there is a tension between opposing viewpoints, not because one side is moral and the other immoral, but because of a disagreement about which values should hold precedence in the situation. A classic case in point is the abortion debate in the US. Both sides of the debate make moral claims. It's a freedom versus security argument, fundamentally. Which takes precedence, women's freedom or baby's right to live? For the record, I'm pro-choice, but that shouldn't imply that I don't understand the opposition. That part of the opposition which argues from a religious position holds no sway with me, and I certainly wouldn't listen to anybody who thought that women's rights were not important. But that part of the opposition which is concerned that ending human life, even fetal human life, is no different than murder or eugenics should at least be considered. I feel like it is commonplace in the 21st century to make arguments against the character of one's opponents, like arguing on the merits of the case has gone out of fashion. But I'm a scientist and a rationalist, so that's what I do. Like so much else that I have thought about and discovered in writing this podcast, the question of morality and its foundations opens my mind by undermining assumptions. It would be nice if there were an objective morality to rely on, but perhaps there is not. Perhaps we are just fortunate to be the descendants of a social lineage of advanced primates, a lineage that survived by working together and wrestling with deep questions, by discovering compassion and mercy in the context of a dispassionate and merciless nature. We are not made in God's image, but rather he has been made in ours. He is a judgmental moralist, demanding allegiance to his claims to the good. But are those not simply the moral judgments of an ancient people held up to heaven as an anthropomorphic mirror? We are the ones who have discovered good and evil, the moralist species. It is true that we are the ones who have invented slavery and genocide and weapons of mass destruction, but equally we are the ones who have criticized and acted to suppress such things who have criminalized rape and child abuse, who are outraged by tyranny. Let's hope that when we encounter an alien species, it too has evolved a pro-social nature. If not, then we will quickly learn how much more there is that draws us together as one humanity than there is disagreement. Other human cultures may have strange and even terrifying ideas of morality, but at the very least those cultures, like ours, are confronted with the problem of morality. A sense which might not exist at all among the ranks of some far-off invader.